Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That, your weekly podcast where this politically engaged queer millennial unpacks world events through the lens of anxiety, depression, and everything in between. Um, I'm really excited about today's episode, and I think that you guys are going to be really excited about it, too, because it is probably one of the most different things that we've ever done. Um, so today, uh, we are unpacking a couple things. We're going to talk about historically black colleges. We're going to talk about education. We're going to probably talk a little bit about current events just naturally. Um, and we're also um, probably a more fun side. We're going to unpack um, a beautiful black couple that I've had the um, opportunity to get to know over the last um, couple minutes and over the last couple of weeks. So um, this is this is this podcast is different for a couple reasons because um, I've never interviewed anybody um, who is together and I'm not there with them. Um, and I've also never interviewed a married couple before. So um, when you're listening, the sound might sound a little different. I hope that you can feel. I think the the joy and the dialogue that I can already tell that I'm going to have with these guests um, because um, I can already tell that they're super special people. And we haven't done a lot of episodes recently where we felt really positive. And so I think that this might be a good one um, for you guys to, to hear and listen to. So um, there's no title yet at the time that we're recording this. And I think that that's okay. Cause I think it's going to be something that we create together as we, we talk. So um Today, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast uh, two new guests, uh, Keldrick and Randy. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, Good. Paul. Paul, you're about to make me cry. We're doing so well. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Um, long day at work, but um, I, I've been kind of looking forward to this all week. Um, I think that um, for, for those of you who don't know, who are listening on the other side that don't get to be a part of this um, recording conversation, um, Keldrick and I had a, what, a one hour conversation randomly on a Friday, like two weeks ago. And it was one of those conversations that you have with people where you feel like this could go on for two or three more hours. And I wish this was in person. I wish we could do it at a bar, at a park, and then just sort of like walk around and sort of keep talking and keep learning from each other. And I think that many people have, have been uh, responding to me and saying that it is interesting to watch me go from somebody who was probably not okay with racism to trying to not be racist to trying to understand like uh, like black people and the black experience um, the many different types of the black experience um, and I think that Keldrick is somebody who just like every time he spoke it was like okay I gotta relearn you know like, <laughs> <laughs> do this over again um, and um, I think that that's pretty special so um, uh, I think, like, Randy, let's start with you. I would love for you to introduce yourself. Um, we don't know each other that much because I've only really talked to Keldrick before this, but if you could introduce yourself, you know, personally, professionally, um, and then just, you know, where you guys live, where you're from, all that stuff. Okay, cool. Well, hi, everyone. My name is Randy Loray Harrison Stevens, and Keldrick and I currently reside in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I'm currently a fourth grade teacher at a charter school. Um, and I love to teach ELA. I'm from South Carolina and I am super close to my family and friends there. I enjoy laughing loudly, traveling, FaceTiming friends and families and finding free events in the city. Um, I like to think of myself as a radical visionary and that's like what I aim and strive to be. But typically I'm just a corny person um, in a 28-year-old body. So that's me. I, <laughs> I'm also uh, currently a doctoral candidate 
um, and I'm pursuing my doctoral degree in educational leadership and policy. So I'm super excited about that. I'm very passionate about first year teachers of color. So that's a little bit about me. Could you? Oh yeah, go, I was gonna say, could you tell me a little bit about what it means to be a radical visionary? Like in your own words, I'm sure it's a, a thing that you've been thinking about for a while, but I would love to hear what that means. Yes, so when you think about being a visionary, like you have these visions of how the world could be, how people could interact. Um, and then you add the radical piece is that it's so much different than how the world is right now. Literally, that's how I define it. It's like, wow, my idea of the world is so opposite of what we're experiencing right now that it's going to be seen and felt as radical. And so that's what I imagine me in the future being. And it sounds like, like part of probably how you think you'll accomplish that is like maybe through education, like through like your work and your studies. Cool. Absolutely. So like I think about my kids being our future slash the present present right now. Who do I want to take care of me when I'm older? Who do I want making decisions for me when I'm older? Who do I want making policies that will impact my life? Um, who do I want working on my body when I'm older? Like these are all things that I consider whenever I'm working with children. Um, and I guess we'll dive into this a little bit more, but I just think that it's so critical that uh, children have a chance to be critical thinkers. So uh, in a world that tells us what to think, not how to think, sometimes we lose sight of that. So I'm excited to dive into that. Me too. Um, as somebody, I think, who has been getting a lot of <clears throat> criticism online for telling people how to think, um, you know, that is is something that I think will be really interesting to me for to hear your perspective on it. As I... <clears throat> try to maybe be more of an educator, unofficial social media educator, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. That's really interesting. I think anytime you're using your voice, like in some ways, everyone's an educator. So just all about, you know, sometimes we can forget about the credentials. Um, and we <laughs> all can be, we can, we can be educators on our own and start with our families first. <laughs> Agreed, yeah. So Keldrick, how about you then? Like, could you tell us, a little bit about you personally and professionally. Kind of hard to follow. Um, <laughs> but uh, my name is Keldrick. I also go by Kale for short. Um, I do a lot of work in college admissions. And so I help students primarily within the entire continent of Africa, Southern California, Mississippi, and China as well, um, navigate the college admissions process within their specific context. So meeting them where they are, um, lots of flight points. Um, that's actually how we pay for our honeymoon, um, using all those flight points. Yep. Um, but really just a beautiful way to connect with students from all over the world. And I think it's such an amazing um, career passion of mine. Um, I'm also wrapping up my final semester um, in the leadership and organization <laughs> performance <Yay>. program, finally, <laughs> um, at Vanderbilt University, Peabody College. And I think I will not, I think I actually love this program because it offers a different lens for me to view college admissions. Um, so I'm always curious about organizations and how they meet the needs of their stake, their constituents, stakeholders, the people that they're serving. Um, that's one aspect. But at the same time, I'm always concerned about the people that are actually doing the work. So the humans that are on the ground traveling, um, meeting the needs of the organization. And I just love people. And so, you know, in that, I'm always curious about DEI work, um, talent management, retention, um, workplace identity, what makes people happy. I want people to be happy in their work. 
Um, my favorite color is olive green. Um, I'm 28. <laughs> I'm these, and that's just me. I love being happy. I love smiling. <clears throat> that's so well. Um, so Kel and I have already decided that we're we're best friends. But um, <laughs> if, you can't, if you can't like here, it's so funny that you just mentioned smiling um, because I have like, there's this term I don't know who coined it because I. I whatever you know I, I always like will forget to credit the source um but there's like that 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 hearing the smile like through the phone mm-hmm. or through the dialogue or through the podcast like i can just like watching you guys smile and laugh at each other is so funny <laughs> like to sit down i think with uh, two people and do a podcast with them that are probably never like i don't know maybe talked in this way like at me it must be like interesting so right um, you'll probably see me roll my eye a little bit every <laughs> once in a while <laughs> i get that a lot all the time yeah i think i'm the eye roller too in mm-hmm. this relationship with my husband so, um, <laughs> um, but um i do want to talk a little bit just about like how we connected because i think that that's something that's really important um especially as I know many of the people who listen to this um, are women with anxiety um, and men with anxiety too. But, you know, a lot of the people that I hear from, I think thinking about how we connected and how we sort of started this dialogue, like the biggest shout out to, to Ben Bousquet, who I know works with you um, mm-hmm. and also was a friend of mine from college and somebody that has sort of made the connection for us through Instagram. Um, I think that like um, it, it has been really hard in quarantine to like, meet new people and i've been talking a lot with my therapist around like what i love to do truly love to do not just my work but what my passion is and my passion is like creating things with people and learning from people who are new and not being able to go outside and interact and have dialogue in this normal way like is really inhibiting for somebody i think who like connects with people in such an intimate way normally like i mm-hmm. like I, I so having this opportunity having ben sort of make the introduction i originally invited ben to a podcast and he said probably not me but I <laughs> and, um so i just think like if you're somebody right now who is kind of missing that social connection or missing that extroverted part of yourself like I don't know, maybe dive into Instagram because maybe there are people that you can meet. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful again that you guys took the time to even be on our podcast. So our little little tiny podcast here. Our pleasure to be a part of this huge influence that you'll have. Exactly. Paul is so (laughs) special. (laughs) Yeah, I used to make jokes like, all five people listening to this and like that was true then it's not exactly true now and i don't say that to put pressure on you guys i say that to just be transparent like for all of you new new listeners out here this podcast is amateur as hell and uh you know we go we go by this we fly by the seat of our pants and and um you know i think that that's what makes it genuine authentic just like the genuine and authentic relationship i feel like i've been able to build with you guys just very shortly so um all right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we will jump into education, HBCUs, and a whole heck of a lot more. So thanks for listening and stay with us. Let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Um, We are unpacking with uh, Kel and Randy today. Um, And the first topic that um, we wanted to talk about um, and share um, was historically Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. 
use. Um, there are over a hundred in the United States, which I could not believe about. I could not believe when I was prepping for this podcast. Um, and they support more than 200,000 students in any given school year. Um, so you both went to an HBCU. Um, I know uh, just from the people who listened to this that many people did not. I know that a lot of people didn't even know that term beforehand. Um, and I didn't know that term until probably like I had been to Howard University because that's mm-hmm. the closest one that I know of that's near me. But like, I didn't know that that's what you called it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I would love to talk about it um, because I think that one of a reaction that a lot of white people could have is a college Wilson for black people. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, so like, why would anyone do that and go there? Um, mm-hmm. So I guess like, why did you guys choose to go there? And we could take one individually, whoever wants to speak yeah. to you want to go first? Well, for me, um, I think, I guess the best, the one word to describe it for me was really identity. Um, I went to a predominantly white high school at the time and just, I, I went to a predominantly white high school at the time and I didn't have the language or, you know, the scholarship to really describe what I was experiencing mentally um, as far as like with microaggressions and racism, um, you know, embedded in certain curriculums or in the classroom. Um, and so with that in mind, I remember for me as a first generation student at the time, I was connecting with my um, cousin. So hashtag black girl magic, my cousin, Shanna Stevens Hampton. Um, she actually told me about Tuskegee. She said, go down to Tuskegee, go to open house, apply and you're just going to go like don't even think about it you're going to go you're going to want to be there and so all in all for me it was going to open house felt like a really big family reunion uh, family oriented environment um, seeing beautiful black and brown people that look like me um, seeing professors you know who were talking about research that i really you know admired um, seeing people step and dance although i don't have any rhythm um, you know just seeing all of that it just really you know, it was just very amazing, very beautiful, and it just drew me even closer. Um, so for me, that's why I really wanted to go. And also the history, um, we'll kind of talk about this later, but we were both tour guides. And so just knowing the history of Tuskegee and HBCUs in general, knowing that, you know, at the time, land-granting institutions did not, would not enroll Black students. And so HBCUs came on the scene as a way to create that space for Black and Brown students at the time. And so just knowing that history, giving me that why I felt just empowered and affirmed. And so a piece of my identity is like connected to attending an HBCU. Yeah. And Randy, was your reason similar or? Yes. So basically all of those reasons, especially the family oriented environment part. Um, when I graduated from high school and I was looking for and comparing schools, I actually made an Excel sheet that I um, hand wrote and it was plastered on my ceiling above my bed because that's how serious it was like of a decision that it was for me um growing up in south carolina um, my guidance counselors told me you're going to clemson or you're going to carolina and because i had the grades to get into those schools oftentimes i thought that um but my aunt and uncle who are north carolina a t graduates encouraged me and said randy loray my middle name i may use that during the podcast um you will never get an opportunity to go to an HBCU again and get the undergraduate experience. So we really strong, strongly suggest that you go right now while you have the opportunity. 
and um, being able to see homecomings and people get together and people who don't know each other that have a similar life story just by looking at each other can connect. Like that was just something that was really powerful to me. I was also drawn to um, Tuskegee because of the mission, which is knowledge, a leadership and service. And so um, I've always enjoyed learning. Um, and that's why I'm still in school getting this doctoral degree. Um, <laughs> I always loved leadership too. And just like, having leadership positions, also having like background leadership positions where people don't know that I'm influencing what's going on, but I am. And then service has always really been important to me, even for my bachelorette party. We did, we did community <laughs> service. That's important. Yeah, yeah. So I want to speak a little bit to something that you mentioned about like white people may or may not knowing about HBCUs. And I just want to maybe give this as a reason why without giving the reason why, because I'm not here to uh, defend or support or um, what's the word, um, persuade people. But if you think about, um, I think about our experience at Tuskegee University in Tuskegee, Alabama, we were always aware that there was Auburn University up the street. Mm -hmm. But often Auburn students never knew that there was Tuskegee University down the street. And so because of that dynamic, this is why HBCUs had to be created to create spaces for us because if we didn't create them for ourselves, we would have people would not have ever known about us, um, and we would we may have gone into the world not ever feeling like we belonged. And so I think about the differences between Tuskegee and Auburn, and this is a little bit more systemic. Um, but I think about like we had to go to Auburn to go to Walmart. We had to go to Auburn to go to certain stores that we needed to. Um, get art supplies and to get plants that we wanted. People were not uh, just coming in droves to Tuskegee, Alabama, because um, from their perspective, there was nothing there. So in a world where we are hyper aware of others and others are not hyper aware of us, it's one of the reasons why we need HBCUs and why I will continue to support HBCUs. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I love the way that you said that. I. And, and, and Kel, that's kind of, it reminds me of something that you said when we were first talking about that. And, and I think you just mentioned it here too, like that affirmation of the importance yeah. of like, it felt affirmative. Like, I, yeah. and that is not how I felt my first day. My, my first day was like, I, you know, yay, I'm away from my parents, you know, like, <laughs> it, was like, like it was not about, you know, uh, and, and my, my college was a, a, a PWI and, um, although I am very grateful to it for it turning me on to the value of service um, and the value of leadership. And I say probably the critical thinking was something that I learned the most about in college. Um, I don't think that I would at all say that it was necessarily diverse because even within the communities that we had, it was complete segregation of white mm -hmm. students and black students. And, and that's in the Northeast, which is supposed to be the liberal accepting diverse melting pot, if you will. I've been using air quotes a lot. I don't know why. It's like a new thing that I'm doing. Um, uh, but I, I would love to talk about that feeling of like affirmation and the feeling of importance. Like what what was it like on that first day? Because um, I don't know. If, if, I had, if I had been somebody that was in a minority community and never seen a ton of people like me, I have to think that that would be like overwhelming because of my anxiety but like but also just for you i would love to hear 
like your experience of what that was like on like sort of your first day, like walking through campus, you know, like the first few classes, I don't know. Like, yeah. So my first day, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I got there, my roommate, I won't say his name, um, but very special guy. I haven't talked to him in a while, uh, but he literally welcomed me with open arms, got there late because I'm always late to everything. Walked into, <laughs> walked into the room and he was like, Hey man, how are you? And like greeting me with this hug which I wouldn't have found at my high school, um, some, some more than others, but I just, I wouldn't have found that exp- experience that. Um, also, we had, you know, little small groups as with our orientation leaders. And what was so affirming for me is that <clears throat> we were actually taught the history of Tuskegee. Um, and so as part of the history, um, you learn everything from the founding, the founders. Um, a lot of people assume that it's Booker T. Washington. Well, it's actually Lewis Adams, um, who was a former slave is a part of the um, the history of Tuskegee, um, and you know, and just going on into understanding like the the bricks and how you know actual students made the bricks and laid the foundation for certain buildings. Um, you know, being able to walk the hall, well, not the halls, but more so like the streets and like, oh my gosh, my ancestors actually walked walked these streets. You know, it was a very chilling experience, and that was affirming for me, knowing that. I'm not doing this just for myself, but I'm doing it for others to come after me. I'm also doing it for those who come before me, um, who've actually built this campus literally from the ground up so that I, as a black man, could have this chance to be here. So for me, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm gonna commit to this 100%. I'm gonna be here. I'm going to enjoy my experience. Um, you know, you just see, again, people that look like you from so many different backgrounds, you know, black people are not a monolith. We have so much um, beauty, in, in all of us that, you know, you're meeting people from so many different backgrounds and you're just learning from each other. And I just, it was a really great experience. Um, and I would encourage anyone, you know, visit YouTube um, and type in Ball and Parlay, Tuskegee University, <laughs> and you will see the excitement of all the students. And under the shed. Under the shed, yes. Uh, and the shed is literally, literally just a shed and there's the band and all the students are just up under there, just dancing, having fun. And, you know, and I, it's, you're having fun and no one's saying anything about it. You know, it's like black boy joy, black girl magic, just really all right there in that one space. Um, so yeah, it's magical, I would probably say. It gives me such a huge sense of um, like culture. Because, um, you know, my first day was who's going to be the person who's going to buy beer? And then who are we going to drink with? And who are we going to you know, who's going to be our person that gets the fake ID. And it was 30 minutes from my hometown, which you guys like had that probably, but also everything else, you know, like um, I, it's, it, I don't know. When you say black boy joy and when you say like black girl, I like can feel that. I don't know what that feels like, but I feel that I can understand that how different it was. And so like, I'm curious Specifically, I know um, one of the questions that I had was around like curriculum mm-hmm. and elective because like um, certainly my education um, growing up was whitewashed. Um, and I know we'll talk about that like a little bit more later, but um, like my understanding of black history was there was a guy named MLK and mm-hmm. he fought, was killed. And then there was an act that was passed and everything was equal and everyone was growing up roses darling um and so i uh you know i'm just curious around some of the curriculum and electives that maybe you had um that might be surprising to somebody like me um 
because what you are saying and maybe you don't feel how different it is but what you are saying about your education and how you're talking about your education is revolutionary compared to what i felt (laughs) and i loved my school you know so um i'm just curious about like curriculum wise some things that were interesting and randy maybe if you wanted to to speak to that i'll share a little bit um i know that when we the summer going into tuskegee as a freshman we were required to read a book and you know after being in honors classes in high school and having summer reading lists all through high school and in middle school as well, I just thought, oh my goodness, I have to read another book? Like I have another summer reading book to to read and I'm going to college? Um, But we had to read Up From Slavery um, and that was the first introduction to the curriculum at Tuskegee University. I think it was really important that we understood as Keldra was speaking about um, the footsteps, the shoes that we were gonna be walking in as Tuskegee University students, because um, I think when you know more about where you are, you're more willing to be respectful, you're more willing to um, take on some of the characteristics that those people had. And so reading up from slavery was, I mean, it it wasn't the most uh, pleasant book to read. You know, there's not always a happy ending. And I think that was one of the things that the professors were very, thoughtful about because as you go through high school sometimes you read all these books with the happy ending and they lived happily ever after and you know the black white people got together and they were happy coexisting um but to read up from slavery and to hear about some of the the realness Mm -hmm. of racism and white supremacy was really important for me because um when i was in high school i was in the honors and ap classes and so in a way i was in a diverse uh school without having the experience of being in a diverse school because I was excluded and isolated from my friends of color, from my black friends. And so um, that's another reason why I went to Tuskegee because although I played basketball with black people, they were never in my classes. And so there's this narrative, no one ever says it, but there's this narrative that, oh my gosh, black people aren't as intelligent. And I started to take on that token black girl persona. And so it was really important that I went to Tuskegee to dismantle that within myself. That, no, that's not about curriculum, but I just had to mention that part. No, but that that is like, I mean, you wouldn't, you probably may not have that perspective or it might've taken you longer to get that perspective if you didn't have some of that like forced reading and then some of that the forced pieces of curriculum to be like, all right, like I know I need to like do this. I recognize that I this was a limit of the education that I had before. So I need to diversify my own education, even though I am a person of color, kind of. I don't know if I said that exactly right, but. Yeah, I think you're you're getting there exactly. And I, I also believe that Keldrick and I like created our own curriculum by being mm-hmm. university ambassadors. That wasn't a part of everybody's curriculum, but because we were part of a group of learners who were interested in history, and this is a person who didn't pass the AP US history exam, mm-hmm. Literally, um, yes. <laughs> but I could pass an HBCU Tuskegee University uh, test with flying colors really spoke to like how education and how schooling impacted me negatively. And so as university ambassadors, we kind of created our own curriculum. If there were some visitors who came to um, campus who knew about Tuskegee, uh, they might drop a little hint of something else that we should research and we would go and research and mm-hmm. figure out ways to add that to the story of Tuskegee University. Um, and so in that way, we kind of create our own curriculum. I think that's something important too, is like as teachers, 
letting the curriculum from students guide you. So I'll let Kojic talk about No, I was just going to say like, curriculum. Um, as far as like being a tour guide, AKA an ambassador, we were also orientation leaders. Um, Lorraine was also Miss Tuskegee University. Um, she was featured in Ebony, so woohoo, all hell to the queen. But um, even to your point about, you know, creating our own curriculum, we were required to take Tuskegee history quizzes in order to become an ambassador, to actually be an orientation leader. And uh, I too did not pass uh, my AP, I think it was AP World History at the time. I did not pass my AP World History or AP US History um, exam, but those Tuskegee history quizzes were so difficult. Um, and I think I failed the first time, but they, uh, going back to that family unit, that family culture, my advisor said, no, I see so much potential in you. Like you bring such, you know, um, such energy that we need for the ambassador team. And I want you to retake the exam again. Um, again, everything from the. <laughs> I'm laughing because he failed the, the, the quiz test to be an ambassador. And then our senior year ended up being the president of ambassador. Oh, yeah. So I think it just shows the power, like you said, of a teacher and people finding the niche and, and seeking out, okay, there's something here. He might not have the test, but there's some type of genius inside this book. Yeah. <laughs> to Sam Morris, who was our advisor at the time. Uh, but you see, like, history quizzes, even, you know, for her going for Miss Tuskegee, like, she had to actually learn the history again. And there were, um, we had speak outs, as we called them, where you, if you wanted to run for um, a leadership position, you were required to get up there on the stage and students were allowed to ask you questions about the history and you had to answer. And if you did not know, um, we had a thing at the university where we got our keys and we shook our keys and that was like us booing um, the student off the stage because like you can't represent us if you don't know your history. Like you, That's being a part of the culture, being a part of the community, um, even in the orientation class, which I think maybe every institution has, but for us, what was different is that you, again, discuss the ways of Booker T. Washington. And I know there is this constant debate between W.E.B. Du Bois um, as well as Booker T. Washington, but specifically thinking about BTW, where you learn his ways, you learn the why behind everything. And that, that fueled us, that gave us that motivation um, to do what we had to do to get to Tuskegee and to get out, um, to make, uh, we weren't in a rush to get out. I loved it, but. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was imagine more. being in a rush to get out of a place. Um, and like, yes, that's yes, that's more like it. Because my mom was like, "No, you got four years, homeboy. You need to get out." So I had to get out in four years. But yeah, I was also I also have a mother like that. Um, but I I and I I don't do this to equate um, a struggle at all. I just do this to um, I think recognize at least because I I like to try to like contextualize for me as I sort of learn a little bit. Like if I had had a class in queer history. I may have a lot less homophobia, internalized homophobia now. Um, and when I've been talking to um, some of my uh, other Black friends or other queer friends um, on more of the recent episodes, as I've started to learn and make this podcast something that's a little bit more, I think, hopefully a little bit more impactful for some people, like that importance of being seen by your teachers um, mm -hmm. and being seen in the content and the curriculum is so important and the fact that they like made you guys take quizzes on it to be like oh no you can't you can't just be somebody who's like i'm smart and i have charisma and so i can be the president like which is you know the only reason i ever rose to a leadership capacity in my school is because i worked a little bit hard um but i could smile nicely um and i could make people laugh but like so if you're like in that sense like they are 
that's like the first thing that they're saying for like day one, you are learning your curriculum and you mm-hmm. are, um, you have to know this in order to like advance well in this university. Yeah. I think that that's really unique. I don't know. Absolutely. And not only do you have to know your history, you have to be able to present it in a way that's interesting, um, that's informative for people who are five years old, who are in kindergarten, visiting um, up to 80 year olds who are um, award winning historians. And so that's two different things. Um, And so there's an art to it. And while learning about Tuskegee, we had to learn how to present it as well. And it's the only HBCU that's also a national historic site. So that was another um, weight place. I don't want to, that was more internalized. Like we had to carry that weight of, like anybody could literally walk on this campus. I, not current president, but any president at the time could walk on the campus and say like, I want a tour of the university. It's a national historic site. And we had to be as tour guides or, or any leader for that, any, not any leader, any student at the time, you had to, at the drop of a dime, be able to give that, tour, um, starting at the monument, walking around to the different sites, the um, markers, and explaining, you know, this, the year in which the Tuskegee Chapel was burnt down, and what happened, and, you know, um, us rebuilding that chapel, um, you know, the um, oath, um, Booker T. Washington's home at the time, and, you know, why it was painted this color, and designed in this way, um, you know, it's just so much, so much of that, but I think that's another part of it, it was a National Historic Site, so we had to actually know it for that reason that, again, anyone could come up and we had to talk about it. So was it was it nationally historic because of the way that it was built and because of like the like protests and the like slavery and that were involved with it? Or were, were there like like uh, I, I don't know that I fully got that from like some of the answers you said before. Like, is is that kind of the reason why it was like so more so much more like um, like. I guess, ingrained in, in you guys? Or is that kind of typical from what you know about other HBCUs? I know your experience is obviously your own, but. Um... Mm-hmm. I, I'm comfortable with saying, I don't know. Okay. I don't want to give out inaccurate information, but I do think that it in part is uh, National Historic Site because of Booker T. Washington and who he mm-hmm. rose to be as a figure and also the philanthropist that funded Tuskegee and helped mm-hmm. him build, um, including Rockefeller and others. And so I think that's part of it along with the museum that's there and their statues and all type of um, sacred um, artifacts. I mean, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, um, the John A. Kenny Hall, which was given from President Bill Clinton at the time as an apolo- a public apology um, to Tuskegee um, because of what happened. You know, I think there, again, there's just a, a litany of things that have transpired over the years that could contribute. And I agree with Larray that I don't know the exact reason why, mm-hmm. but I mean, just a long list of things that could possibly contribute to why it's a National Historic Site. What I think is so important about the HBCU experience is like, I I have these analogies sometimes, but you've ever been to a protest or a march, and if you go and ask one person why they're marching, there's one reason, and the other person has another reason, the other person has another reason. Well, it's important, I think, for any organization, university, that if anyone were to come on campus in a car and stop a student, that they can deliver the same information um, that is accurate and then the next student could. So I think that consistency of like, why are you here slash what is Tuskegee University about and the history uh, was something important that kept people coming back. Yeah, well, that's interesting because that was another question that I had, like where where did all of the students come from? Um, because when I, um, uh, like all of the good um, white new allies or new 
I said that wrong. Uh, like all of the, the white allies, uh, the God, um, like all of the like all of the new allies who are trying to participate um, in this conversation and fight for equality and equity um, and inclusion. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm leaving all of this in because I think it's important for people to realize that everybody makes mistakes. Um, you know, in 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 like every kind of person who is now all of a sudden trying to be an ally, you know, reading has become incredibly important. Um, and I've been reading Ta-Nehisi Coates um, and his description of his first day at Howard and the um, diversity in Black culture and his, like, such clear references to, like, everything that you guys are saying, but also just, like, references to Black history. I, I think I said to you, Kel, like when I open that book, it mm -hmm. takes me five minutes to get through a page because there's so much I don't understand. Um, and it takes me a quick Google. I like have Wikipedia up while I go and while I read um, because he was talking about all the students who come from different tribes and come from all over the world. And um, I didn't even know what tribes he was talking about or what words mm -hmm. he was saying. And I just like, like there was so much I realized that I did not understand about diversity in Black culture. And I would imagine that it was sort of a similar experience at Tuskegee, um, that it, it pulled from many different areas or or no? Yeah, I mean, from my admissions lens, I and just interacting with friends, I would say that students came from all over the world, um, you know, internationally from the Caribbean, from you know, various states as well. I'm not exactly sure specifically where people came from, mm -hmm. um, but we had, you know, beautiful people from all over the place. For me, my first time getting on the plane was actually going to LA to visit my best friend's family um, at the time. So he was from California. When my next, well, my other best friend from New Orleans, um, another best friend from Cedartown, Georgia, a place I had never heard of, and I'm from Atlanta, you know? And so you just, you have people coming from all over the place for various different reasons. And that's just Tuskegee, but I can only imagine like the Howard, the Paul Quinn College, um, a Morehouse, and, you know, there's so many, like you said, so many HBCUs with history and with students coming from all over the place for various different reasons. So to answer your question, I know, <laughs> I know we have three of Coates books in our, on our bookshelf right now. I just gave one away last week, but we don't know where people came from um, because honestly, sometimes asking that question is um, a sensitive thing and we understand what it means to be asked where are you from? Whether it means that someone thinks you're exotic or whether it's mean it's meant to other you. And so I just, I don't really know where everybody came from. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably didn't matter, I guess, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Or at least in, in getting to know somebody immediately, like you said, that it can be a question that people ask to like, well, why do you look like that? Or like, why do you mm -hmm. like that? I think sometimes the intent behind some of those questions. So yeah. Well, I would love to figure out um, how you guys met. <laughs> oh. I skipped over that question. Uh, but I would love to figure out, like, just, I think um, one of the things that people love when they, uh, when they listen to this podcast is that personal side of people. So I'm not asking you to divulge every single piece of information, mm -hmm. but I would love to figure out how you guys met and how you guys found each other at school. I don't, well, I guess how many students were there? I didn't, that's probably a, an important question. Because if there were like a hundred of you guys, then I would assume you would have met. But like, I would assume there's more than that. 3,000? 3,800, something like that. Yeah, I think yeah. 3,800. We had to remember those facts. Yeah. They're just not, I mean, and it's changed since we've been out of school, but 
around, I'd say under 4,000. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. You want to talk about how you we met? We probably have uh, different versions, <laughs> and that's why he's saying I go first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we met at an amb- ambassador's informational session. So um, there were posters and flyers of, you want to be an, inter- uh, an, an university ambassador? And we both ended up being there. We both remember that first day seeing each other. I remember distinctively Keldrick had a one shoulder backpack and that was like a turnoff for me. Not that I was even looking to date, um, but he had that on and I remember him being very quiet and like taking notes and not really knowing a lot of the answers. It seemed like he was there just to like be an ambassador for the social uh, privileges mm-hmm. maybe, or for the little stipend that we got. Some of us got. So um, that's how we met. Then um, we started hanging out and we had mutual friends. One of his roommates I was in classes with. And so we all started hanging out together. Later on, we ended up going to Bible study together and taking walks on campus. Long walks on the beach. Long walks on the campus. Uh, And... I had a very strict rule about courting before we started officially dating. So we did the old fashioned courting for about seven months before he asked me out. And so that's kind of how I remember us meeting. Yeah, that's true. Um, So I actually, I went to Tuskegee on loans, student loans. And so I desperately needed to become a university ambassador to get that scholarship. Um, So I was, taking down several notes, like copious notes, to make sure I passed that exam, still failed it, but I became an ambassador, got the scholarship. Um, I remember Lorraine there, she was in the back. She was the one that got all the questions correct. Um, she raised her hand for every single one. And I I don't wanna say it was a turnoff, but it was just like, lady, like, please be quiet. Like, let some of us shine. Um, and so we became very close. Like he was gonna be able to shine. <laughs> he didn't know anything. <laughs> Um, we became really like best friends. We literally, we did everything together um, down to the very moment. I knew like um, her favorite drink as friends. Like I knew what to order her on the menu. Like we would like literally just as friends, like going out, I'm like, oh, I know she's going to order. Like I can just order, order it for her while she went to the restroom. Um, and we quartered mm-hmm. for seven months. I was trying to keep me on track. We, no, no, no. We quartered for seven. Oh, well, you went to a credit card decliner? You can. Oh, so on our first date, <laughs> Um, we went to, um, I forgot where we went, but the power went Bonefish. out, Bonefish Grill. We went there, the power went out that night, and my car declined, and I didn't have enough money for our very first date. And so we were literally sitting at the table, transferring money <laughs> to each other's accounts. to like have- Yeah, and we didn't have each other's accounts. Oh, we, yeah, you're right. We didn't. So I guess I she, you paid, she paid for it. Yes, she paid for it. I was trying to give myself too so much credit. It was actually on my dad's car. Yeah. <laughs> I was yes. gonna say we had a free date, so we had to, as university ambassador, not only do tours around campus, but we also had to host events. And so one night there was a choir event for oh, Christmas, yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, Keldrew was interested. He was like, "Okay, you want to go grab a drink at the um, campus nice, fancy restaurant?" And so we went in there with our blazers that had the Tuskegee emblem on it, <laughs> and uh, we both ordered, ordered sprites on the rocks. And that was our first. That was our first drink day. together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we we courted for seven yeah. months, and what she forgot to mention in that seven months of courting, she actually had me read a book. We had to have a oh, book yeah. discussion on the conversation by Hill Harper, 
Um, I was in Indianapolis doing a research program and we had to literally talk. And I don't I don't want to make it sound like she was crazy or anything. It was just literally she had high standards and I was chasing after her to like, I'm going to do everything I can. Um, and it was, that was it. Oh, and then lastly, I knew that I like wanted to be with her because no lie, my final exam for U.S. history at Tuskegee, um, she I didn't study. And so the very last day, like the day before the exam, she helped me cram and study for my test. And I aced it because uh, she was teaching me like little things to like remember certain parts of the exam. So, yeah, cool. he, he asked me out and I said no. And oh, then yes. I went on a, a week long conference in New York City. And that's when a hurricane, I don't know the name of the hurricane. Irene around that time or something. So um, on the way back, we all the airports were closed. I had to ride a bus for eight, 18 hours, some yeah. eight hours. And when I got back, I was like, you know, I really miss this guy. And I never miss men or guys that I have friends with or date, really. So I was like, I'll give him a chance on the ride back. When I get to my apartment, I open, well, I look at my door and there's a heart that says uh, my name. And then I open the door and there's like little cut out paper, construction paper hearts everywhere that says, I missed you. So corny. He he had gotten in touch with my roommate and set up my room that way. And so I was like, you know what? I think I'm ready to date you. Let's go. I legitimately have tears in my eyes right now. Um. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'd, let's unpack that in another episode. Um, but uh, how funny. Uh, the first time I ever uh, took Jack on a date, my card was also declined. So I feel. Oh, your best friends. I see. I told it you. It was meant to be with y'all two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, well, let's get off this topic because I'm feeling love today. Um, but so, <laughs> um, but that's cool. So I, I, um, I really appreciate you guys kind of walking through um, your experience a little bit. Um, are there other things that you would want to share about your experience at school, or do you kind of feel um, good enough to transition onto a new topic? Um, nothing really. I mean, other than Tuskegee really cultivated this sense of like black pride um, for me. Um, I also had to, like you said earlier, had to unlearn a few things from my predominantly white high school. Um, you know, just if the idea of education, sharing knowledge, I always thought that had to be the specific package way to share knowledge. But, you know, um, professors like Dr. Camille Hayes, Dr. Chiano Chom taught me that education can come in the form of hip hop or poetry or um, watching television shows, black TV shows and teaching, learning history that way. So um, that's really it. Just, you know. I really loved it. I'll just add that when I decided to go to Tuskegee, although I was in honors classes, that I was ashamed by a lot of my classmates and teachers who thought that I could do better, air Mm -hmm. quotes. And so just to the audience, I just want to encourage you that if a student comes to you and says they want to go to the HBCU, to please not look at the HBCU as less than PWIs. So that would just be my one last thing. Woof. That's also (laughs) another episode. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's, well, that's, it's so funny, you know, when I just think about my experience and my schooling, you know, like, like, it was like, 
you want to do it, go for it. You know, go for it. Just do your thing. Like, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful to that. And people are like, oh, you're, t- you're doing something that's less than. I can't, I can't help right. but think that that person maybe had no idea what they were talking about. You know, I don't you know. know it's, it's like that high school thing where you post where you're going to college. And so everybody's like, where are you going, yeah. Randy? And don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. Yes. That's so exotic. Yeah, I got that a lot too in mm-hmm. high school. Uh, and I mean, yeah, I, I just I got that a lot in high school where people like, where what is a Tuskegee? Oh, I know where Auburn is, but where yeah. is Tuskegee? I'm not even knowing the meaning of Tuskegee um, warrior, you know, so just, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then just meeting people. Like I used to meet people, um, white people specifically who were able to major in writing and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I would have loved to major in writing. However, my family looked at, looked at college as my economic opportunity. And so, no, there was no room or space for, uh, going to college for a writing, um, to major in writing. So just, really wanting people to grapple with how do you uphold what's good, what's a good major, or what's a good college? Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be my last thing. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Well, let's take another break, and then we come back. We will keep unpacking uh, education uh, through a lens that I think is really interesting and, and really cool. So uh, stay with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Um, we're back here with Kel and Randy Loray. Uh, <laughs> and um, I wish this was a visual podcast. So you could see how much fun we're having. Um, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, my whitewashed education. <laughs> um, because Let's talk I, about it. Let's talk about it. Because um, I, right now, I, I, I know that there's a lot that I don't know. I've learned a lot over the last couple of months as I've tried to be more of an active listener, um, an active participant in some of this stuff. Um, and I guess like as people who work in education now have received advanced degrees in education, um, I like, I don't know, you know, we've talked a little bit about curriculum, but I didn't know anything about, mm-hmm. you know, trying to flavor out um, slavery, segregation, nothing, nothing about redlining. Um, and like I said before, I feel like my school books, although I was in school, in, in elementary school, you know, quite a few years ago, um, they seem to like what I would say celebrate the wins, you know, like, oh, women can now vote. Uh, Black people can now vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he was so great. Like, forget the fact that, you know, brutally murdered, mm-hmm. um, you know, just like Malcolm X who, you know, just all of these things that I never mm-hmm. learned um and like i think yes as a child maybe it could have been too much to learn like like i but like maybe it couldn't have been digestible enough but you know as somebody who i feel went to an open-minded progressive college um and although i went to a, a catholic university there were quite i would say the school was probably 10 to 20 percent black which was a lot for my area it mm. was right in center city philadelphia um so like being able to pull from diverse communities both my high school and my university talked about like diversity as a strength, but like not at all was that reflected in the curriculum. Um, and so uh, I, I feel that like 
I would love to talk to you guys about how to diversify curriculum or things that you've done or things that you've experienced that could be helpful. Um, Because to me, I think what it feels is surface level um, Mm -hmm. because we get 11 months of of white history and we get um, one month of not so white history. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't really feel like learning about two or three black figureheads is probably sufficient whether you are white or black um, in any school. Um, so I would love to, to talk about that. So um, again, long way of asking a question, but um, like Randy, can we talk a little bit about um, diversifying curriculum? Yeah, sure. So um, I've really been looking and learning a lot from Goldie Muhammad and she has a book called Cultivating Genius, um, Geniuses, I think. And she just talks about like her work as a contractor in school districts across our nation. And that one simple way to start by diversifying curriculum is simply just turning the curriculum over on the back and saying, who is on this curriculum committee or panel? What are the faces? What are their histories? What are the educational experiences? Um, And if the committee is not diverse in any way, how can we expect the curriculum to be, right? And moreover, how can we uh, expect the curriculum to be anti-racist to any degree, right? And so I think that's one initial evaluation of like, is the curriculum diverse? Um, And I I also have seen where curriculums were um, supported by people of color and written by, but they never got credit for it. So there's this like removal, erasure, thing going on too that I think is um so baffling to me um well just and before we jump on I just think mm-hmm. something about um who's in the room uh yeah. like that is something that's very relatable for people who um work in corporate America like I do um who's in the room you'll never get diverse thought processes if there's not diversity in the room um and that's not just to be like let's put black people in the room like like mm-hmm. yes that's what right. we should be doing but it's a conscious thing that has mm-hmm. to happen of like hey we are trying to do this thing how do we do this thing better and how do we make sure that there's multiple perspective backgrounds and things represented in here and that is i i, I just go on this little tan- mini tangent here because i feel like that's something that if people are saying, well, I don't work in education, I don't know, mm-hmm. like, I, I can see ways that I can do that very easily in my own job. Um, yes. And not just because that there's a, a Black person who is on my team, um, but just because I've met and experienced a lot of diverse people and candidates mm-hmm. uh, in interviewing for jobs. So I feel like it, I don't know, I, I know we're talking about curriculum, but that was just something that no. just like, that's an idea, come on, like, let's do it. That's easy enough. So yeah, sorry, I, mean, I interrupted. No, no, no. <laughs> like I would even, you know, I echo everything you're saying too, Paul. I, it's, it's unfortunate um, during this time of COVID. However, you know, there are so many things changing rapidly due to coronavirus. And I think now is a time where organizations are realizing, crap, like we don't have diverse voices at the table, diverse perspectives at the table to help us move to the next level. And that's going to be a challenge for a lot of businesses, a lot of schools, um, a lot of institutions, a lot of just organizations in general, that's going to be their demise where they can't move forward because you don't have that sense of diversity um, or you, you just don't have that on your on your leadership team or reflected in your office. So you're- Even in higher education, when we talk about their curriculum, um, in my doctoral program, I've read one article by a person of color, by a writer of color. And so 
my experience is, yes, I'm so excited that I get to join this PWI and be a part of a, a cohort that's different than what I experienced at Tuskegee. But at the same at the same time, what's the cost for me in that? Is it that I no longer can indulge in writing and, and books that relate directly to me or that are written by people who look and have experiences like me? And I think representation is important. I think there's been... Um, an over-reliance on representation now, and now it's become the trendy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so what I see happening is creating committees. Oh, we wanted to make sure it looks diverse, mm-hmm. but but still there's a power dynamic there. If one person who is white still has- um, All the power. Yes, if, <laughs> you know, if it takes 20 black people to have the voice of one black person in the room, then your committee is still not diverse. And so um, it just really takes a really good hard look at what are the interactions between people at the table? Who gets to say what, when? Um, because also I hear like white people and other leaders talking over other people or ignoring things that black people say, right? And so um, I've had moments in my educational experience and in business and professional settings where I say say something and maybe it's not in the language that people mm-hmm. understand. Maybe it's not as palatable. Maybe it's not as sophisticated because I'm mumbling over my words. But somebody next to me could say the same thing, but they're in white skin and it gets acknowledged and it gets taken and they get credit for it. And so um, I think that's also part of this process of like creating a diverse curriculum. Um, we also can't talk about having curriculums without us addressing that children are human beings. They aren't, you know, uh, deposits where you can just put information into their brains. There are certain different aspects of, of children. So does the curriculum address the social and emotional health of students? Does it address the trauma that students have experienced? Are we teaching before we even know our students? Mm-hmm. Are schools taking you know, I think it's good to take three weeks of getting to deeply know your students. And I think I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But what does it mean to know your students? Is not just, what's your favorite sport? What's your favorite food? It's much deeper than that. And so what I, what I hope is also illuminating in this conversation is that curriculum is absolutely important. But I think we should put more investment and a little bit more emphasis on teachers as well, because if what what is it? What good is it if we have a curriculum that a teacher doesn't believe in, mm-hmm. that they don't follow, and that they can't modify to, in response to the needs of their children? Um, so, what good is that curriculum if the teacher is not going to make it come alive in the classroom? I can tell that you're a teacher because I'm learning as we're talking. I just, um, you know, I like I we were talking today um, with with one of my team members about. Um, just like the rules that we put in place and the, the spoken rules and the unspoken rules of like, you know, when we're judging people, when we're interviewing people, when we're talking to them and we're putting them into these boxes, you know, like one of the um, black associates on my team was showing up late, like pretty consistently. And rather than me as well, I wasn't his manager at the time, but I was still his teammate and, and he was new. I should have been looking out for him rather than be like, oh, I wonder why he's late. Like, let's understand the issue here. Let's spend three weeks, like you said, getting to know this person mm-hmm. so that we can understand their goals, their objectives, their family life, their background, everything about them that we could not uncover in a 60 minute interview. Um, and let's talk about it and figure it out. And you know, eventually I said like, hey, just so you know, you know, like it, it's like, we're kind of like, you kind of have to be in by this time. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, like I read that, but you know, I, I drive my mom to work every day and I have to make sure my little sister gets to the bus stop. And I'm like, 
okay. Like, you know, it's just like, <laughs> if you were the person behind the worker or the, or the background behind the, the worker, like, or if you didn't just look at that person as a student, as a deposit of information, like what you were saying, you look at like who they are and uh, where they come from and like what they're, not necessarily what they're motivated by, but like what is going on in real life? Like what trauma have they experienced or what trauma do they wake up and deal with every day? And, and, and trauma, you know, we just did a podcast on that. Trauma is not just like this yeah. horrible event. It's like, mm-hmm. but what, what is their real daily experience like? Um, right. And I just think that's interesting. And that's why I said like, I'm learning from you as we talk because like <laughs> it's so important in education to build like these fundamentals too. But like also like for those of us who are actively in the workplace and, and not, really thinking about um, like differences in people, especially now with all of us being remote, surrounded by family, surrounded by people all day that we weren't normally surrounded by. We can't just go to work and disconnect. Like your life now truly stays with you. There is no more work-life balance. Um, Absolutely. Can I just push one thing that you mentioned is like um, that your black associate had a sister and a mother. And like, I just, I want people to understand that like, Yes, I'm so glad that you did that and reached out to them in a gentle and loving way. But the push here is if you grow up in a family unit where it is individualistic, and some of us have individualism because we're just praised and brought up in American society that perpetuates it, how can you value that somebody else is deeply seeped in a community, right? So there's a distinct difference already with just that. Like I could see that same scenario playing out and the person saying, well, I don't value family as much as you do. And so you're still late and it's going to be a write up. Right. So how do we push ourselves from thinking that people do not have relationships or shouldn't have relationships that look a certain way? Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. God, I'm like, (laughs) I'm learning so much. Well, getting back to curriculum. um, No, um, I guess um, one of the one of the questions that um, I put on our on our outline is like, I don't know if if you could look back at like some of your education. Is there a dream curriculum? And maybe that's me like trying to put a bow on stuff. Yeah, I love. I love those. Um, but, um, you know, I, I recently talked to my therapist around like, um, well, I just want every day to be like perfect and happy and good. And he's like, well, if you can figure that out, we'll make a lot of money together. And I was like, right. you know, but I get what he's saying. So like, again, I, I put in, I would say like, th- like a dream curriculum representative mm-hmm. or like what, you know, like, but that's not reality. So I just would love to hear your thoughts on what a of what a better curriculum could look like. Yeah. When I thought about that question, I was like, ooh, I don't have an answer, right? Because I, I'm so careful that if I give an answer that people might go out and run and, and get this thing or say this is a good thing because I heard on a podcast and then we're back in the hole again, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to be extremely thoughtful in the way that I respond. But here's my first instinct. When you create a curriculum, it should center Black people, right? And I would even go to say it centers black trans people, because in that way you can capture almost all of the intersectionalities that are absent in most curriculums. So when you think about the least of these, and this is our religion coming in, but when you think about the least of these and create a curriculum around that, you already automatically capture the other people who would have also might've been forgotten about. Um, I think another starting point is like really having a critical historical lens that really centers the experience of the people who were enslaved or oppressed. I think about the Whitney plantation 
in Louisiana that did this, what people, people would consider a radical flip on what a plantation usually is. And the Whitney Plantation actually centers the voices and the experience of the people who were enslaved, not the people who owned and oppressed the enslaved people. And so if we start to think about it in that way, and if we heard stories of people who were enslaved, if we heard stories of the people who were persecuted and shot and killed in our history books, I think there would be a different realization that happens and an internalization of, of the content that teachers are trying to get across. I think too often that, um, and you mentioned it, like this happened MLK, then this happened, then we made this policy and then we got over it. There's this overemphasis of like, if you be kind, mm -hmm. then people won't be racist. Like you can out kindness, out kindness yourself and that will supersede any type of racism or an oppression that anyone can experience. And that's just not reality. Still systems in place that bar people, like you said, kind of starting your curriculum, including black trans, mm -hmm. um, being mindful of intersectionality. And I, I mean, I'm not a teacher, but you know, one thing I've been grappling with that kind of relates to curriculum is that, again, with systems, when you look at the very foundation of education, you know, its inception, that educate like black people could not, you know, be taught how to read and or write, you know. So these curriculums, some of them are still seeped in that. And I think uh, one thing I would at least want white listeners to know is that, you know, and really, kind and really trying to be inclusive and really make act make space for everyone. It's going to involve going back to the granular level and really trans being. Um, radical. I think you kind of mentioned that earlier, being very radical and dismantling so much. And yes, it is a lot of work, but it has to be done, you know, to be more inclusive and to be more thoughtful. Um, to uh, Yeah. So that's that was just one thing I wanted mm -hmm. to throw in there, too. But Yeah. Well, I, I like that idea of, of um, centering it around who we know are, I, I don't, like, I know, I don't know. I, I I came upon this today. Just like the word marginalized feels so weird to me to use. I know that that's the fact, um, but it just it sounds like it sounds like you're not talking about people when you say marginalized. I don't know something about that. Just well, I think yeah. When I think of margin, I think like ELA teacher that you're just pushing us out to the margins and like once you say that word, that means that we are marginalized. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's it's odd. I feel the same way about minority and a lot of other terms too. But that's just my quirky. Um, and in very particular nature. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, I could nitpick language like so much and it's not to be like to police people's language necessarily because I know that language has like roots and meanings in many different places and historical contexts, but just like some words, you know, like just feel, I don't know, like we, we uh, I'm involved in non some nonprofit work and we used to use the phrase poverty stricken a lot. And like, what the hell does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, I, but what I was trying to say is like thinking about, um, you know, like communities that are most impacted by um, or pe people, types of people that are most impacted by race, racism and violence, like what you said, starting about um, like uh, with black trans people, um, specifically black trans women, I know, um, mm -hmm. are, are disproportionately affected by violence. And so if you think about starting a curriculum or dialogue or anything around like, all right, how do we start with? The, the, the people who are facing some of the most challenges. So you're mm -hmm. looking at gender, you're mm -hmm. looking at race, you're looking at ableism. Mm -hmm. Right, you're looking at ableism, exactly. And so you're sort of naturally creating um, 
inclusivity in your mm -hmm. curriculum, workplace, event, whatever it is, um, by thinking about it from that perspective. Um, and I don't know exactly how to get to where I want to, to go with this statement, so maybe I'll just leave it there. Um, but I, I, I think that that would do wonders for having people feel seen, supported, and heard. And I don't say that again to like put a bow on stuff, but as I, as I think about my own experience, for somebody just in my school to even use the word gay and not sin in the same sentence mm. would probably make me love myself a lot more than I do today. Um, mm. And why I think, you know, I have some of the, the mental health issues that I struggle with. So I just, I love, I love that kind of teacher perspective that you're coming at it from. Um, uh, let's look at this from a certain way or a certain lens first to make sure that we're representing everyone versus thinking about here are facts that people need to know. And I, I know nothing about how curriculum is created, but I just, you know, like you feel like you're every year you're getting taught facts over facts over facts. Like right. how many times and I learn about Mesopotamia and how many times can I see pictures of the people who were leaders in Mesopotamia as white people, you know, mm -hmm. like, let's, let's mm -hmm. really, let's really flip this. I don't know. And I'm sure there's lots of teachers out here listening who are thinking, okay, Randy, that sounds great, but I work in a public school and I have a set curriculum and standards and things. And I just say to those people, be radical in your thinking. Like in some point kids are going to have a book in front of them with a little white girl and a little black boy, or a little uh, white boy. And so, give them something new in your class because they're going to get those things somewhere down the line. I mean, it's just inevitable. And so I, that's the way I look at it is like, give it to them while they're in your class because you don't know if they'll get it anywhere else. You're right. Cause like, what does our media look like? Like you mentioned already like over representation that feels kind of false, you know, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily feel authentic and genuine. Um, so I guess, um, you know, we are talking to, to teachers in a sense in this podcast, like what are, what are some of the learnings um, that you would think about? Uh, or one of the questions that we have is around like supporting students of color, like skills and strategies that teachers should know, um, specifically black students. Um, is that something you, you feel like you can share or is that, you know, going, you yeah. know, again, is it, is it sort of like me trying to um, tell a story in, mm -hmm. in a way that we're all it. You want to go first? You want to go? I mean, well, I mean, I'm not a, again a teacher, but <laughs> educator in a sense. You have uh, educated uh, me. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm, I'm saying I'm thinking of this from an admissions perspective because I see this a lot. You know, when supporting students, I'm um, helping them navigate again the admissions process, and you know, from that lens, I would just encourage people to, or teachers, counselors, um, to ensure that you're not pimping, quote unquote, um, students' trauma. Um, so from a college essay perspective, making sure making students write, you know, the horrific parts of their stories to gain admission, uh, you know, I no, don't or to do falsify that. it. To, just yes, to falsify exactly, or zhuzh it up, as some people would say. Um, you know, everyone's story is unique. Everyone's story is important. Um, and I always tell students, you know, this is your time to use your voice and for you to really create this thing for your application. Um, so that's number one. Little fires everywhere. <laughs> Did you watch it? I did. Yeah. Yeah. No oh, good. That was our date night on mm -hmm. was it Netflix? Every Thursday we would watch it. Keep going. Anyway, um also <laughs> see keep seeing check. Um and then another thing that I think about from the admissions perspective is just keeping in mind that black people are again are not a monolith. There's so much beauty in blackness. Um one size does not fit all. Um uh, and we have to include again all identities. So whether that's from the 
um, educate, educator perspective and creating that curriculum, or even from the higher education perspective and the admissions process, that there is no one single cookie cutter black student that's going to fit the mold. Like, let us be like, take, you know, break the mold and let people be their authentic selves. Um, you know, not trying to fit them in this box or this quota. So those are my top two things. Um, I just have kind of one thing. I think one of the skills that students of color will need um, coming out of a classroom is agency and autonomy. And I put those together because I think about um, being a parent of a black child and how the immense pressure that that it has on you to make sure that they are safe and that people don't see them as a threat and all and that people view them as smart. And so as we continue to raise black children and children of color, parents have to, in some ways, uh, take the agency from children to make decisions for them. So children are safe and they feel protected and they're seen as smart or they're seen as non-threatening. And so in school, I think it's a really great time to create that radical world of outside of our society and say, you know what, you are already safe. You're already loved here. You can use your voice to say that, you know, if there's an assignment and you don't necessarily like writing papers and you want to make a podcast, go for it. And we can use Google Voice to put it into text right? That's not going to be every time, but that student should be able to voice their opinions. And if there's a way that they can submit their assignment or their activity in a different way, that teachers are able to go with the flow. Um, Because I don't think that Black children and children of color have enough agency in their life. Um, And I think about how, even in the, my experience, my, the adults in my life, don't use agency at all, right? If we go to a a restaurant, they might use it to send back food that's cold or that doesn't taste right. But sometimes it's misused when I see adults use it. So it's like, oh, they did something wrong with me, I'm gonna sue them, right? It's just overcompensating for like not having agency or not learning how to be uh, autonomous when we're younger. I also think that like, Curriculum and teachers cannot be plug and play. And I see this happening across our country where any and everybody can come and teach, any and everybody can (laughs) can come and create a curriculum for us. It is not a plug and play thing. Teachers cannot be functionaries. If they could, we would already be replaced by computers. And in some ways we are. I don't consider that to be the most high quality education. But I know there's people out there who do. where I start is always listening to students and families and learning about them deeply. I, I spoke about this a little bit earlier, but questions like, what is your favorite? Uh, what do you like to do? All those are very surface level. And honestly, teachers aren't gonna remember the 25 different sports that kids wanna play, the 25 different things that they wanna be. So questions I might ask are like, what are some of your deepest fears? Or I might try to figure out what are the unexpected expectations that a child has for me as their teacher. Or I might get to like try to figure out what's the root of either a student being silent or overly, overly talking. Like what is the root of that? Why are they talking so much about so many things? Why are they advocating for certain things if they are? And what does that say about them? And having conversations, I think teachers need to understand that there should be more listening than talking whenever we're in a classroom with students. I think something that came to mind for me is that 
it, when you talked about, you know, students that are talking too much, what does that mean? It makes me think about my elementary school experience and how I was in trouble constantly because I talked mm-hmm. talk too much. Um, That's the story of many black children. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I remember vividly getting sent to the principal's office because my shoes, which are the shoes my parents could afford at the time, were um, the early school light-up shoes. I was reprimanded for, because of the type of shoes that I wore. Um, that my teacher deemed like these weren't appropriate for school, for the school environment. Um, But, you know, well, today I have to talk in my profession. Like, that's what we do. Um, But really trying to be normalized and like fit into this box. Um, I don't know, but that just made me think about Mm -hmm. when you said students that talk too much that my teachers did try to put me into this box um, as, you know, as a young black boy. I was going to say, well, well, Kel, when you were talking, it, it maybe gave me a little bit more insight in, even into like what you're hoping to tackle or what to a tackle. Give you a little bit of insight maybe into some of the things you want to tackle like with, with your degree and kind of moving forward in your career too. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that too. I'm s- truthfully still exploring. Um, you know, and I, I think that's a beautiful thing for me. I've Sometimes, well, growing up, I was always taught you need to have a plan, you need to stick with it and stick with it until you, you retire. And you stay for 30 years. And you stay for 30 years and you just stick there. And I'm going through this process through my program of unlearning that I have to stick in one specific place and role forever. And so to your point or to your question, I'm just really open and I'm trying to learn as much as possible. I do want to stay in college admissions. Uh, I would love to be a dean uh, of admissions someday. Um, I love studying historically black colleges, universities. So if I end up in an HBCU, wonderful. Um, and at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, I stuff I love studying organizations and people in organizations and what makes them happy. Um, and I don't know where that will take me, but I'm open to all of that, um, looking at talent management and things like that. So I don't have a specific answer. Favorite but, class, favorite course. Oh yes. The, the, um, you've taken. See, I sorry, I'm not the interviewer. <laughs> No, but, but you can be. You can be. <laughs> so one of my favorite professors, um, Professor Corbett Doyle um, at United College, I talk about her every single day. Um, she taught this course, um, Leading Globally Diverse Organizations, and just the world that we're living in, that we've always lived in, and as we continue to progress and move forward, now is the time to diversify your, um, you know, your C-suite, as you call it, your board of directors and the people that you're hiring. Um, you know, and it's not just because you want to be more profitable, which is great, but at the same time, these are distinctive voices that deserve to be in these spaces and that can help you in a time like this. Um, so that's my favorite course. Um, and I mean, hey, I'm even open to being VP of talent management, whatever that looks like. Um, I do have a nonprofit in mind that I want to start. I've had this idea since college and Lorray has been pushing me to continue with it. Um, so... <laughs> We'll see how that goes, but I'm just right now just dreaming, writing out all of my visions and my dreams and just going after them as much as possible. Yeah, well, one one thing that just like stuck out to me as you were talking, like when I think about the company that I work for, um, so often um, we turn to our black associates, I think, to, to help us um, listen better, to advocate better. Um, and that's great that they can be part of the conversation, but I think that when you think about like structural changes, maybe that needs mm-hmm. to be made. It's about, like you said, um, 
having diversity in the room as it comes to talent management, as it comes to training and uh, implicit bias, tra- like all of yeah. those things impact us inside the workplace that of course you hope everybody's learning outside of the workplace, but we know that people spend most of their life at work. So having mm-hmm. that diversity and that leader in the company, what I, what I, what I fear, um, what I've heard from a lot of my friends um, at companies similar to mine is that they're worried that there's an over-reliance on the black people to tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. They already have jobs. Uh, they already have full-time jobs contributing in other areas of the company. Um, yeah. To have people do that and also um, you know, lead diversity, mm-hmm. uh, equity, and inclusion um, seems kind of unfair. Um, yeah. It also seems like people might not be getting fairly compensated for that. I was going to underpay, yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know when I just, when I think about like that, whether it be in a school with somebody helping with curriculum or whether it be like, like you said, in, in any organization, whether it be who gets admitted into a college or, yeah. um, you know, like just in any like corporate environment, like that skill set is so important. And to me, it feels like a skill set that should be compensated for, not as an add on to some other things. So, I think um, and compensation you know, doesn't always have to equal money, right? I know that a lot of people like to monetize things, you know, capitalism, individualism, whatever you want to call it in America. But I think that um, a lot of companies and schools too do not realize the intense emotional labor that it takes to sift through policies at a company or to sift through a student handbook or manual to look for white supremacy or to look for um, uh, racist uh, ideologies, to look through a, a uniform policy. It takes a lot of emotion to do that. And oftentimes white people can leave and go about their lives and black people, black indigenous people of color have to sit in those feelings for hours afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's a mental health day that we need, yeah. right? And and it, it shouldn't be policed. It shouldn't be like, oh, we're going to give you $5, but you have to come back tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. because yes. we have an early morning yep. working breakfast. So I just want people to think more broadly and, and outside the box when it comes to those things. If you're asking us to do those things and people are willing to, then you need to ask them how would they like to be uh, supported. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's hugely important. Yeah. There we go. Um, right. Um, <laughs> so I think. Uh, you know, to kind of to kind of close this out, I'd love to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I think the last section on our agenda, which is around like activism in education. So um, one thing that has been wildly um, important for me is just even diversifying my social media feed to follow more um, black influencers. Um, and that like, you know, you wish it didn't come to George Floyd for you to have to do that. Um, but that's the reality for a lot of us. So mm-hmm. pick yourself the fuck up and let's start, you know, being uh, active allies in this. So um, tangent, but uh, so I would love to to hear about some of those people within education that we, we can follow, you know, diverse or not. First, you guys have already mentioned so many resources. And <laughs> as, I li- as I listen back, I'm going to try to do my best to like have them all in a note, but even just mentioning some of your professors that I'm sure are published and putting work out there. Um, but are there educators that people can follow on social media that, that you find um, particularly inspiring or organizations that we can support or causes that people can donate to? Um, so, why question? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going to say one thing yeah. and I'm letting him go. Um, 
I, there are conversations in circles and pockets of people who say that this is only important because people were home for months because of quarantine. And so to my white allies out there, whether performative or real or working in between, um, this is a moment where your silence is deafening. So um, make sure that it's not a trend for you. It's not just a little way of life for a couple of months while you're quarantining still. And that is actual life change. And that's, that goes, I want to also echo that for organizations and, you know, different businesses. Like it shouldn't take you this long to have said something um, or have done something, you know, that does speak volumes. Um, but I have a professor in mind or a, a list of professors um, who I would definitely recommend checking out on Instagram. I'm a huge LinkedIn fanatic. So LinkedIn, um, shameless plug Facebook as well. <laughs> but um, Chris Emden, he is, he actually taught Lorraine. He was my professor. He was her professor. <laughs> and I, and this is kind of weird, but I just like stalk this dude on LinkedIn, his um, books, um, Instagram, like we're Instagram followers, like dope guy and professor at Teachers College. Um, he talks a lot about, or he writes about culturally responsive pedagogy, um, hip hop pedagogy. Progressive and hip hop ed. Mm -hmm. So really just, um, you know, a, a different way to teach students and to educate a different style of teaching. Um, Sean Harper, who's a professor at University of Southern California, does research on black men in higher education. Tyrone Howard at UCLA. Um, you know, Shazari Warren, who's actually um, an incoming professor at Vanderbilt. Funny story, I was actually traveling for work and I was on a plane and I sat beside, a, the, you know, this gentleman, well-dressed. I'm like, so in awe. I'm like, dude, like he can, you know, he's, he's polished. Like I, I really like, I'm not, I wasn't surprised. I was just like, I really want to dress like that. He inspires me. And we were on this flight to St. Louis, just talking, having a great conversation. And he tells me who he is. And he tells me about this book that he published. And, you know, we just really developed this really great, you know, relationship where he's, you know, like a mentor, like a brother to me. So Shazari Warren, um, definitely check him out. Oh, um, so yeah, I mean, and then as far as donating to organizations, I definitely want to put a um, plug out there to donate to HBCUs. Um, you know, Jeff um, Bezos' wife, um, they were divorced and she received a large settlement and she's donated a lot to HBCUs. Um, not just, you know, I don't want to be performative, but, you know, there is research out there that talks about, you know, um, in terms of finances, like the differences between HBCUs and PWI. So give to HBCUs, not just to the big name HBCUs also, but there are other amazing HBCUs out there that you can donate to. Um, All right. So I love the idea of changing your timeline. I think it's important. Right, because what you see is what you're going to follow, what you're going to think about, and what you're going to invest in. So, um, I'm not a huge resource giver because I think people overindulge in that and don't do the actual work, right? But I'm gonna give you two. So, the two people I'm gonna give you are um, esteemed in research, teaching activism, and they talk a lot about race, education, and black joy. The first one is Valencia Clay, she's an eighth grade humanities teacher, she's also a doctoral candidate. And she's a critical theory professor at, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, she has some really, uh, she's really reflective and reflexive in her teaching practice. Amazing. And Bettina Love, she's an educational researcher. Uh, she's an athletic association endowed professor and the co-founder of the new um, abolitionist teaching network. So ATN, and this was founded this year in 2020. And she talks a lot about how we have to build education from the ground up and abolish it. So. Those are the two resources that I'll give and plug in. 
Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Um, so uh, seriously, thank you. Um, so I think just based on what I know about people um, is that they can hear a lot about people through this podcast. So um, if they want to hear more from you, where can they find you? You can also say, I don't, I don't need any more friends. <laughs> um, like I said, I'm a huge LinkedIn fanatic. So Keldrick, K-E-L-D-R-I-C-K-L Stevens I'm on LinkedIn or on Instagram at Mr. K Stevens, M-R-K-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S. Um, I just post pictures. I love taking pictures on my iPhone. So um, that's my little safe place there. Uh, feel free to follow me on IG at Leray HS. That is L-E-R-A-I-H-S. That's it. <laughs> I don't well, I don't know the name on my um LinkedIn actually. I don't know if it's Randy or if it's <laughs> Lorraine. But you know, if you find me on IG, just DM me. I'm not actually. Uh, no, nobody's sliding your DMs. No. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I I hope that um people learned as much as I did. Um and people feel kind of inspired. I think um I've always felt a passion for education. I don't know that it could be a profession for me, um, but supporting, I think, um, education, like you said, um, specifically supporting things like HBCUs, like how, you know, how, how much like does that take really out of my wallet? How much does that take out of my reading, you know, capacity for the month? How much does that take around the things that I follow? Um, because I think I don't know. I felt I feel like even though I, I've talked. A, a little bit poorly, I think, in, in some areas of this podcast around my college, it was still very formative for me. Um, and I still am very grateful for it. So I think that, you know, thinking about like the experiences that a lot of Black students maybe have at HBCUs, I think is is important. So guys, like, seriously, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> thank you. This different. Uh, I know we talked about like serious topics that could also make me cry, mm -hmm. but I also I don't know, you guys bring and inspire hope. Um, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if you guys know that you do that, but um, I'm just, I don't know. I'm really I'm really grateful for you guys sitting down and spending time with me, um, being part of this journey. Like 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 I think you said, like people can get over-resourced. They can, they can over-share, like you said, Randy. Um, and um, I think that like one thing that so many of us are conscious about and so many of us have that anxiety about is like, we don't want to fail um, and we are right. so, and so like we don't want to give up once we can go back to bars and restaurants we don't want to give up once we can go on mm -hmm. vacations and take advantage of you know the unequal pay that we get um, mm -hmm. you know we don't want to you know yeah. like fall back into who we like used to be or maybe still are um, mm -hmm. and so you guys don't owe us any of this time but thank you so much for making time um for making us laugh and making us smile and making and having so um thank you guys so much for joining the podcast well we are pleasure it's our pleasure to be a part of such a project and i am so motivated because your questions were spot on and they made us think mm -hmm. and people can always do that they're not in education so kudos to you paul i'm, I'm impressed yeah well thanks i don't need i don't need it 
I'm, also, I'm so bad at taking compliments. I don't know if you can tell that. So thank you. Oh, oh we are literally best friends. I am the exact same. I'm like squirming in my chair right now. I'm like, this is so uncomfortable for me. I know. Uh, well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of Let's Unpack That. I will, of course, be posting on my Instagram at It's Paul Warren. And I will tag both uh, Kel and Randy LeRae so that you can. I love saying both names, by the way. I don't know. I love it. <laughs> Um, and, um, so I, you know, when you'll see the post come out and I'll try to link as many resources as I can, as I'm going through and listening, but also just get in touch with us. If there was something that struck you about this podcast or something that you wanted to learn more about, um, please do it. Um, because this is part of our work again, as mostly white listeners, this is part of our work to be better allies. This is part of our work of getting involved. Um, and this is just one facet, you know, and there's, this is again, what, I don't know if we're at 60, 90 minutes. I don't know how long it's been, but like this is scratching the surface of everything. You're not going to this podcast and be like, there, I'm an ally. And I say that for myself and I say that for all of you who are listening. Yes. So um, I think that like, just recognize that there's more to do beyond this. So get involved, listen, ask, follow up. This is just the start. Um, and this is hopefully the start for me. It's something I am praying that I can, uh, maintained for a long period of time. Um, and thank you guys for being part of probably uh, something that'll get me through another week or another month or however that is. And when I'm feeling low and down, hopefully I can re-listen to this. So again, you guys don't have to be people that do this, um, but I'm very grateful for you both taking the time. So thank you all thank for listening. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, Bob. Outro music. All right. <laughs> thank you guys. Let me uh, let me quickly stop the recording. Um,